Grab your copy of the Word. Turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Um, finishing the account of the life and ministry of Jesus from the words of the beloved apostle John. Uh, we'll finish actually next week, uh, but the bulk of John's gospel will be completed um, in terms of our preaching series today. And uh, so what I, what I want us to think about, consider, as we see another of these, the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus, is renewal and restoration. Renewal and restoration. Chapter 21 of John is somewhat of an epilogue. If you remember the way we started John's gospel with John setting the stage with what's called the prologue, as he's he doesn't start with a birth narrative or anything. He just starts with the life of Jesus. But before beginning his writing on the life of Jesus, he, he declares the glory of Christ and the deity of Christ at the beginning. And he comes on the back end. And, and when we get to chapter 21, it, it seems as if it's, it's oddly placed unless you consider what's coming after the gospel accounts are complete. And so just kind of remember with me for just a minute the way that John's narrative has moved up to this point. Chapters 1 through 12 detail uh, some of the works and the words of the Lord Jesus, his miracles and his teachings. And remember, chapter 13 is where we hit a transition point in John's gospel account where he records from chapter 13 through chapter 17, the last day that Jesus has with the disciples and specific teaching that he's having there in the upper room and taking the last supper together and then uh, his, his prayer for the disciples, he gives them final instructions and teaching during this time. Chapters 18 and 19 include the betrayal, the arrest, and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And then chapter 20, our chapter we've been considering for the past few weeks, present, chapter 20 presents the resurrected and the triumphant Christ. And when you get to the end of chapter 20, it seems as if this is, this is a great place to put a period on what you're going to write. We Looked last week at, at Thomas' confession of the, to, to the Lord Jesus. If you look at it there at the end of chapter 20 in verse 28, where Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And John concludes with his purpose statement in verse 31. These are written, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And, and just, just reading it for story's sake, you think that's a great spot for a period. Just let that be the conclusion. But you end the book here, and when we move into the narrative that begins in the book of Acts, we would, we would be struggling with trying to figure out what's happened, because something very different is occurring in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, there's this massive outpouring of, uh, of, of the souls into the kingdom, and so John includes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what we have as chapter 21 here, and that the resurrection of Christ is the pinnacle of the story, but not the end of the story. The work that Christ came and fulfilled must continue through, namely, his church, beginning with the apostles. And so one of, our, one of these apostles is Simon Peter, who is going to be the primary character for our text today. And interesting, you, you have a, a contrast of sorts with the two major characters in the last two stories that we've looked at. We looked at Thomas last week, the, the skeptic. Uh, some consider him to be a doubter. And then you have today Simon Peter, who's known primarily for his most popular story is his loudmouth denial of the Lord Jesus. 
And so the story before us today is truly a story of renewal and restoration. And so therefore should give every one of us hope. (laughs) Should give every one of us confidence that if we belong to Christ, if we truly belong to Christ, that Christ will keep us. And so we'll read chapter 21 uh, all the way through verse 23 and then come back and unpack what's going on here. So we'll just read the story in its entirety and then consider it in segments. So look at chapter 21 and verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, who's writing this account here, the apostle John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of his disciples, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples. Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, "Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these?" He said to him, "Yes, Lord, you know that I love you." He said to him, "Feed my lambs." He said to him a second time, "Simon, son of John, do you love me?" He said to him, "Yes, Lord, you know that I love you." He said to him, "Tend to my sheep." He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, Jesus said to Simon Peter, follow me. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to to Jesus, and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? So we have this event here with Jesus and the disciples, specifically Simon Peter. And we can think through what's going on here in this event when uh, understanding the backdrop with the passage that we read before uh, we begin to sing this morning where Peter vehemently denied the Lord Jesus and then 
Here's Peter and the other disciples, the other apostles, spending time back in homeland, and then there is Jesus. So what do we learn from this story? The first truth that we see in this event is that Jesus reminds his disciples of his faithfulness. Jesus reminds his disciples of his faithfulness. And so John begins this last epilogue, this, the epilogue of his gospel account with with this setting here in verses 1 through 3, we're told that this is happening at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also the same thing, same as the Sea of Galilee, which some have speculated, well, they're bailing out on Jesus. They're, they're getting away from Jesus, but, but they aren't at all bailing out on Jesus. They're simply actually following the instruction that was given to them. Mark 16, 7, the angel at the tomb tells them, but go, tells the ladies at the tomb, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So what do they do? They go back to a familiar location, Galilee. Most of these guys were from this, this area, and they engage in a familiar activity, fishing. Probably in Peter's boat, if you look at verse 3, is, there's a definite article there. They, they, they said to him, we will go with you. That they, got it, they went out and got into the boat, specifically a specific boat, probably Peter's boat. And there's also speculation here that they're, that, that they're, they're teetering on the precipice of maybe falling back into an old way of life and forsaking Christ altogether. But the text really doesn't give us evidence of that being the case. That's, that's actually uh, prob- that's probably being a little bit too harsh on these brothers. They are in Galilee. They've seen the resurrected Lord on at least two occasions at this point, And more likely they are in Galilee doing what they would be doing in Galilee, making money, fishing. Going back to something that was somewhat familiar, probably not tempted to fully fall away from Christ, but spending time doing what they knew to do. And regardless of the why, the situation here sets the stage for Jesus to do a deep heart work in all of the disciples and mainly Peter. So he introduces a setting and then he introduces us to the stranger on the shore in, in verse 4. As day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples didn't know it was Jesus. It's, it's at the beginning of daylight and so they're, they're, they aren't able to make Jesus out on the shore. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's gently bringing the disciples back to specific points in their own personal journey that reinforces for them his work and his presence. And so he asked them this question in verse 5. Children, do you have any fish? And in the language of the New Testament, the, the question actually anticipates a no response. Like Jesus knows they don't have any fish. And it's one thing to ask a fisherman who's been fishing all day and has caught fish, hey, have you caught any fish? Because then you're, if, if you're into fishing, it's like, yeah, man, we look at the cooler. We are loaded down. But it's Almost kind of insulting, maybe a little embarrassing, sometimes humiliating for you to say, hey, have you caught any fish? When you get to the landing and you're like, no, man, we struck out. And that's the condition of the disciples here. They, they get to this landing, they, they get to, the, to this encounter with Jesus. Jesus asks them, do you have any fish? And they just say, no. And then even more uh, somewhat insulting is for someone who's a fisherman. Now, let's not forget, these guys knew what they were doing when it comes to fishing. This is the lifestyle that Jesus had actually called them out of. This was their profession. As we'll see in just a minute, like when Jesus calls them, they're, at, they're on the shore mending their nets because this is the way they made a living. So if anybody knew how to fish, it's these guys. And there's this stranger on the shore that's saying, hey, do you have any fish? No. So then what's the stranger do? Tell them, well, you're fishing on the wrong side of the river. For anybody who likes to fish, like that's like, man, just get on out of here. Mind your own, because I've been fishing all day, or in their case, all night, and I've caught nothing, and I'm done. But Jesus tells them, cast your net on the other side of the boat, and you'll find some. 
pointing to a miracle of some sort, either Jesus' omniscience or Jesus' omnipotence. Jesus knows that there's fish over there or Jesus and his power brings fish over there. We don't know the case, but there's, there's, there's some miraculous work here. And Jesus tells them, cast a net on the other side of the boat. And then you see this surprise that happens with this great quantity of fish. They cast it, verse 6. They're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, you can almost see the Apostle John like tapping Peter. Peter, wait. It's the Lord. It's just an excitement that we were told to go go to Galilee and he will come back to us. And then they get to Galilee and spend all night fishing, certainly tired and fatigued from working all night. And then Jesus tells them, cast it out on the other side. And for whatever reason, they listen to this stranger on the shore and they cast it out on the other side. And John is the one who recognizes first that this is the Lord. And Peter then puts, on, puts his clothes back on, jumps into the water. This is so like Simon Peter, isn't it? Like, remember when they, got, when they went to the tomb on the word of the ladies? Hey, someone has taken the body, and so they, go, they hit this foot race to the tomb, and John is the one who outruns Peter to the tomb. John stops at the entrance of the tomb and looks in, just kind of considering the situation. Peter catch, catches up a few moments later, and what does he do? Just blows right past John, just busts up in the tomb and sees the situation. And we see personality here in what's going on with Simon Peter. Now, there's something very, very significant happening. So hold your finger here in John chapter 21. Go to Luke, Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, just go to the left, one book, Luke chapter 5. And Jesus in his providence and his wisdom and in his kindness is rewinding for these disciples how their journey with him began. Now let's not forget, these guys who were in the boat had all been made to fall away in some form or another at the point of crucifixion. And Peter specifically, his account is recorded in great detail where he denied him three times. So this is, this is the initial call of these guys to follow after Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 5 and verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the same, which is the same lake that is recorded in John chapter 21. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing the net, washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, same guy in Luke chapter 21, Simon Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. So at this point, Simon Peter doesn't know Jesus. Jesus is teaching and the crowd is becoming so intense and they're pressing up on this person who's teaching with authority that he's, he says, well, I need some room. And so he steps into a boat and he steps into the boat that belonged to Simon Peter and says, hey, push this thing out from land. And when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, verse 4, put out in the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down your nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their, net, their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So, like you see what the Lord Jesus is doing, right? Rewinding in their minds and in their hearts. 
pre-failure, pre-crucifixion, pre-world turned upside down, to that moment when Christ first called them to him. And the same truth remains for them now in this setting in John chapter 21, as it did in Luke chapter 5. What was the point of put, cast, cast, push the boat out from the shore and cast your net? Well, Simon kind of argued and said, I mean, we've, we've worked all night. So, sure, we'll, we'll take... We'll take part in this frivolous activity. We're just going to waste our time and just honor your request or your demand, and we'll cast our net. And they start pulling up the nets, and the nets are so full that the nets are breaking and the ships are sinking, and all these kinds of things are going on. Same thing is happening in John chapter 21. What is Jesus trying to teach them? He's trying to teach them with a very practical case study, with a very practical lesson, that they cannot continue to follow after Christ in their own self-effort. They didn't begin to follow Christ in their own self-effort. Remember, Jesus just showed up on the scene and said, follow me. And at this, they left everything and followed after Christ. And and also, they cannot continue to follow after Christ in their own self-effort. In Luke chapter 5, they didn't catch any fish without Jesus. In John chapter 21, they didn't catch any fish without Jesus. And what's going on here is this, Jesus is visibly demonstrating for them the truth that he has already taught them in John chapter 15, where he, does, where he goes through the teaching of the vine and the branches and the fruit. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And so then they come to the shore and they get on land. And then Jesus has this meal prepared for them. Verse 9 they get out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, fish laid out on it, bread, all kind of speculation where all this fish and bread comes from. Jesus said to him, bring the fish that you've, bring some of the fish that you've caught. Simon Peter goes aboard, and it seems like Simon Peter is just a man of a man because all these other brothers were struggling to get the fish to the shore, and it's like Simon Peter just goes and throws the whole net over his shoulder and walks to the shore. Like, just seems like a brute of a fella. There's 153 of them. Don't read any more into that than a fisherman's accounting system. Right? There's no need to speculate what's the, what's the numerology behind this. It just means that they caught 153 fish, and good fishermen know how many fish that they caught, especially those who make their living from fishing. And so, but then look at what verse 12 said. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of his disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So Jesus invites them to a meal. He takes the bread, verse 13, and he gives it to them and gives them the fish. And this is the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. What's going on here? <laughs> Jesus is rewinding in their minds, surely, another miracle that happened in a very, at least a close place to where this event happens, the feeding of the 5,000. The last time Jesus is working with fish and bread, there's, there's a multitude that is, that is engaged with his teaching. And Jesus meets need and, and miraculously feeds 5,000 men plus women and children. And then these brothers come and set, Jesus has the stage set for them. Bring some of the fish you've caught. He already has this fire in place. He always has a, already has the fish laid out on it. Always has, already has the bread there. And inviting them to a meal. Why is this so significant? Well, who do you share a meal with? You share a meal with friends. Jesus is reminding the disciples what he also taught them in John chapter 15. After the vine and branches teaching, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit 
should abide. What is Jesus doing here? Remember, Jesus is the one who showed up on the shore while these guys are out in the water on their way back, it seems, after a night full of wasteful fishing, coming in with this miraculous catch. There's, there's a meal set before them. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is showing these disciples that even when they are not faithful, he is faithful. Even when they are not faithful, he is faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Christ our Lord. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Church, be encouraged that when we are not faithful, Christ is. Christ is faithful. And that is good news for us because every one of us who profess the name of Christ and are redeemed by the blood of Christ can surely say at some point and maybe even at this point we have been unfaithful to Christ. We have pursued our own way. We have forsaken Christ and for a season pursued the trappings of the world or the lust of the flesh or the desires of the world or the lust of the eyes. But in the middle of our pursuits of other things, Christ is always pursuing us. He is faithful. So Jesus, number one, reminds his disciples of his faithfulness. Secondly, Jesus restores his disciples after their failure. Jesus restores his disciples after their failure. Then the scene turns specifically from all the disciples to this one guy, Simon Peter. Now, let's just be honest. We all like one another, love one another here. We all fail, don't we? If you're like, well, I'm not sure. You need to meet the Lord Jesus. <laughs> because you're way too confident in yourself. We all fail. In fact, the Bible is full of failures. The only one in the Bible who is not a failure is the Lord Jesus. Old Testament heroes have failed at all kinds of points. New Testament heroes have failed at all kinds of points. The only true hero of Scripture is the Lord Jesus himself. And it's because we are full of failures and we are all failures that we need the one who is not a failure. And so Jesus restores his disciples after their failure. The issue that we have to think about as we consider this interaction with Jesus and Simon Peter is how do we respond to and move forward after failure? Now, we read earlier the, the account of Peter denying the Lord Jesus. And even in, the, in these resurrection appearances, like he's seen Jesus at least two times up to this point. He's seen the resurrected Lord at least two times up to this point. And you know he has to be thinking, man, I, my time's coming. He's going to have it out with me. Because he just saw Christ engage Thomas. Right? Remember there in that locked room where Jesus shows up and Thomas has said, hey, you guys keep piping off about this resurrection business, but unless I see in his hands the scars I touch, I place my finger in his side, unless I see him, I will never, ever believe. And then Jesus shows up and says, here you go. Right? Engages Thomas specifically and all these other disciples, including Simon Peter, knows about this. Surely Simon Peter is thinking, my day is coming. My day is coming. Now, what did Peter deal with after his denial? We don't have to worked real hard to imagine what this brother worked through. He worked with the three major downfalls of humanity. He worked through guilt, he worked through fear, and he worked through shame. He worked through guilt for what he had done. 
He worked through fear because he knew that there was going to be a reckoning for his denial of the Lord Jesus. And he worked through shame, just absolute humiliation and embarrassment. Especially since he was the one who had said, I will never deny you. And so after the meal with Jesus, he shifts his attention directly to Simon Peter. And it's encouraging for us as we read the narrative of Scripture, because as we'll see at the end of the sermon, if we didn't have this, John's the only one who records this event. If we didn't have this recorded interaction with Jesus and Simon Peter, we'd be trying to figure out what was going on when Acts started. Because in Acts, the same guy that denied Jesus is the one who is the major key figure in the formation of of the early church. And so Jesus asked Peter three questions here. And they all center around this, this idea of love. Simon, do you love me? Now, a note of clarification here. It's much has been made about the different forms of love and the language that Jesus used with agape and phileo and just kind of going back and forth if you're familiar with those things. If you're not, don't, don't worry about it. It's probably too much of an emphasis on the original language because John uses words interchangeably all throughout the, the language of the New Testament. And so we can't just go, well, he switched to this kind of love here, and so he's telling Peter this, and Peter's responding in this way because John does the same thing with the words for feed and tend, the words for lamb, lambs and fish, and the words for no and no. They're actually two different words in the language of the New Testament. We just can, can chalk these up to variances in the way that John records his events. So let's consider his questions here. Verse 15, the first question to Simon Peter. Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these? Do you love me more than these? The these here is kind of ambiguous unless you know the background of the story. It, he could be referring to like the nets and the boat, right? He could, be, he could be saying, John, do you love me more than you love these guys? But more than likely what Jesus is asking him, do you love me more than these guys love me? And it's based on what, Jesus, what Simon Peter said in Matthew 26 when Jesus has predicted to them, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to be made to stumble because of me this night. This is what Simon Peter said in Matthew 26. Though they, they all fall away, like pointed to his guys in, in the group, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so Jesus asked this diagnostic question, certainly based on Peter's previous arrogance, and he based his commitment to Christ on this comparison with others. He's like, look, if all these guys, all these guys fall away, I'm not. I'm in. Till death do us part. They may fall away, not this guy, not me. What is he operating in when he makes that pronouncement? He's operating in gross self-righteousness. He's operating in some crazy self-confidence. And at this point, his self-righteousness and his self-confidence are collapsing. And Jesus asked him this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And in his mind, his, his mind would have gone back to that very moment when he said, hey, they might all bail out on you, but I'm not. I'm with you. Jesus asked him the second time, verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? There's no comparison here. It's just the question of, yeah, do you love me? The first time, Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. The second time. Simon says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, tend my sheep. And then a third time, Jesus asked him the same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And at this point, Peter's grieved, verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Can, you, can almost hear, you can almost hear desperation in his voice. Like, Lord, yes, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that I love you. And you, you know everything, so you have to know that I love you. Almost a sense of, why do you keep asking me? What's going on? Why the, why the, why the repetition? Why the repetition? Because in repetition... What the Lord Jesus is doing is he's piercing into the depths of the core of who Peter is. And he's pointing to the emphatic nature of Peter's greatest sin recorded in Scripture, the denial of the Lord Jesus. Why three questions? Because three questions were necessary for true repentance. And it isn't until the third question that John says at this point Peter is grieved. Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time. What, this, this word grieved here is the same word that, that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to repentance without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. At this point, Peter's not just feeling bad. Peter's not just embarrassed. He's not just humiliated. He's crushed under the weight of his own sin. And when we become crushed under the weight of our own sin, a good word to describe that situation, that condition of our hearts and minds is grief. We become grieved over what we have done toward a holy, righteous, just God who loves us. And so Peter's not just responding in fear that the Lord Jesus is going to strike him dead on the spot. He's not responding just in the sense that I've got to get my reputation back up above these guys because these guys know what I've said. No, he's, he's grieved because he realizes what his, how his sin has impacted the very heart of the Lord Jesus who's standing before him asking him these questions. Now, let's be clear. We're way too casual with our sin. Way too casual with our sin. We just flippantly say, Lord, I confess it, and we just keep on rolling without a reality that the sovereign king of the universe, who loves us more deeply and in more ways than we can even fathom, is actually impacted by our offenses toward him. And Peter is grieved. And so what does Peter need here? Peter needs to be broken. He needs to be broken, and he needs to be broken so he can be restored. He needs to be broken so he can be restored. And so Jesus breaks him by rebuilding the scene that happened with the denial. Three times. Oh, you're with him. Oh, you're with him. Oh, you're with him. Peter, no, no, no. And Jesus is rebuilding this scene in the mind of Peter, in the heart of Peter, and in the presence of these other disciples who are witnessing this. Rebuilding this scene and restoring Peter by reminding him of love. Jesus questions to Peter, crushed his arrogance, crushed his self-confidence. And surely at this point, Peter remembers where his boasting actually got him. Standing next to a fire in the temple, in, in the court of the high priest. Before a servant girl saying, no, I don't know. And putting his head down. And two more times denying the Lord Jesus. Notice the question that Jesus asks Peter. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And then Peter, the third time, appeals to the Lord Jesus based on Jesus' knowledge, full knowledge of Peter's love for him. Peter knew that Christ knew his heart. And he did love him and Jesus affirmed him. And so this 
This questioning serves really three purposes here. One, Jesus crushes Peter's self-confidence. He crushes Peter's self-confidence with mere questions. Mere questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Never said, hey, why are you such a moron? I told you what was going to happen, and you still failed. Why are you so confident in yourself? Where'd you get all that arrogance from? Why are you so prideful? How does anybody even stand to be around you? No, Jesus just asked him one question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he crushes Peter's self-confidence, but he also confirms Peter's love for the Lord. Because each time Peter says, yes, Lord, Peter doesn't say, he doesn't waver in his response. He never says, I mean, I thought I did. He never says, I'm pretty sure. No, he says, yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So he crushes his self-confidence. He confirms his love for the Lord. And then in this questioning, as we'll see in a minute, Jesus also commissions Peter back into action. Brings him back into the word. Because after every response of Peter, Jesus gives Peter an assignment. Tend my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Take care of my flock. Restoration. Jesus restores his disciples after their failure. Now, let's be clear here. Restoration is never an easy process. Restoration from sin is never an easy process. It's often painful. It's often embarrassing, humiliating, and it's necessary. What is one of our greatest fears in life? One of our greatest fears in life is that we will be exposed for who we really are. And so often our failures are not nearly as public as Simon Peter's, right? Like we're, not, we're not standing in the courtyard saying, get out of here, I don't know him, leave me alone. And the deeper the sin that we commit, the more painful the restoration will be. But in this conversation that the Lord Jesus has with Simon Peter, we see... We see the essence of restoration is love. Love. Jesus is returning Peter back to his first love. He doesn't give him some prescription. He doesn't give him a formula. He doesn't give him an equation. He doesn't ask him even if he believes at this point. He asks Peter if he loves him. This is crazy simple. There's, in typical John fashion, it's clear concise such grace here and there's certainly a caution here for us obviously with the nature of sin and the nature of confession and restoration but also the nature of love the nature of love in today's church culture and and even in our church culture we place a high value on doctrine and rightly so we should on knowing the truth but notice what jesus never asked peter anything about He never asked him anything about doctrine, about belief, about facts. He asked Thomas that question. Right? He asked Thomas that question and told him, do not be disbelieving any longer, but believe. The issue with Simon Peter was not belief. The issue with Simon Peter was love. His questions toward Peter were focused on his heart. Peter needed to know that he was loved by Christ and that he, in fact, loved the Lord Jesus. What was the, what's the greatest commandment that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 22? The young scribe, the scribe comes to Jesus trying to paint him into a corner and ask him, 
What is what's the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And your love for Christ must be greater than your love for anything and anyone else in life. In fact, it's only when your love for Christ is greater than all things and all other people in your life that your love for all that other stuff actually works. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So the question that this interaction of the Lord Jesus with Simon Peter has to present before us is, does Christ have our heart? It's not just about what you know about Jesus. This is not just a head reality, and this is a caution for those of us who place such a high value on right doctrine. That a confession of the Lord Jesus is merely an ascension, an acceptance of certain facts. It's not just about our head. It's about our heart. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And if Christ can restore Peter, well, good news, right? He can restore me. And he can restore you. He can bring us back to that first love. And so Jesus reminds his disciples of his faithfulness. Jesus restores his disciples after failure. And then Jesus returns his disciples back into following him. So what does Jesus do next after this, after this moment when Peter's grieved and he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. He gives him some real encouraging words. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. That doesn't sound all that appealing for the self-confident, the self-assured, the self-made person. And then John gives us an explanation about what's going on here. Verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. What what is Jesus doing here? He's bringing Simon Peter. After the question of love is resolved. After the question, apparently Jesus affirmed Simon Peter saying, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Because then Jesus turns right back around and brings Simon Peter back to the point when Jesus first called him and says to him the same thing. Follow me. Matthew records it this way in Matthew chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, this same place, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. We never move on. We never graduate from the pure essence of following after Christ. And so Peter has failed miserably, and he's been restored on the basis of his love for Christ, primarily on the basis of Christ's love for him and his love response back to Christ. And now Jesus brings it all back to to where things started. Follow me. Follow me. We do a great job of complicating the Christian's life, don't we? I mean, we, we are great at making living in this world as a Christian a gazillion times more complicated than it really is. This is what Scripture says it means to be a Christian. We follow Jesus. 
out of love for Jesus. You take the event where Jesus is asking Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. And then Jesus comes right after that and says, follow me. Follow me. And after we've been restored, we go right back to the basics of following after Christ. And then Jesus gives Peter a job, a job here to take care of the sheep. And surely Peter's mind would have gone back to John chapter 10, where Jesus is talking about the sheep who hear his voice and know him. And now he's the good shepherd. And then he tells Simon Peter that he's going to glorify him in his death. Verse 19, tradition, church tradition and history point to the fact that Peter was crucified like the Lord Jesus, but didn't consider himself to be worthy of the Lord Jesus, so opted to be crucified upside down. And then notice what's going on here in verse, in verse 20. So Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? So we know this is the Apostle John. And so after... After Jesus tells Simon Peter, hey, you used to take care of yourself, you used to call your own shots, but when you get old, it's not going to finish that way. Someone else is going to lead you where you don't want to go, and things are going to work out a little differently for you. So what's the question? What about him? <laughs> so that, like, he's still not, like, perfect. <laughs> right? Like, we see in that, and we're like, okay, all right, there, there, there's hope for me. There's hope for me, because this guy is still just somewhat of a knucklehead. But Jesus said to him, verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What does Jesus say? It's like, you can't follow me for him. He can't follow me for you. You follow me. I have this plan for your life, and I have another plan for his life. Your primary responsibility is to follow me. And so Jesus Restores Peter to worship this response of love toward Christ. And then he restores Peter to his work and this primary task of feeding the sheep. Now, let's be honest. If we, if we just stop and read through the Gospel of John, or read through any of the Gospels, and we see these disciples again, and even in the first, first few verses of the book of Acts, we think that it would have made real good sense for Jesus to have just found a replacement group of followers. Like, just, just blow those up and start over. Just crush that and move on. Get a replacement group. But Jesus, rather than replaces, he restores. He restores them. And so Peter's no longer going to serve self. He's going to serve Christ by serving the sheep. And he's telling, Jesus is telling him, don't worry about what happens to others. You follow me. And in, in all of this event, we hear the one verse from Luke 9.23 that gives the true essence of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And the example of Peter reminds us that the Lord uses frail and feeble people to do his work. And that's somebody like me. And good news, that's somebody like you. Why does he do it this way? Why not, why not call someone stronger than Simon Peter? Why not call someone who's going to get it more right than wrong? Why does he do it this way? Well, he does it this way so that he alone receives the glory. If Peter was some magnificent person that just outside of Christ was upstanding and perfect and 
respectable and just all these great things, well then, surely our attention and devotion would be more inclined to go towards Simon Peter than toward the Lord Jesus. Why does he use me? Why does he use you? Why does he make me his son? Why does he make you his son, his daughter? So that he alone can receive glory from our lives. And the same way we begin with Christ is how we continue with Christ. We begin by his power. He calls us into his family. Remember, we were spiritually dead when he called us. He moved on us, made us alive. We repented and believed on him. And God in his kind providence is continuously bringing us back to the essence of being a disciple, following Jesus. Peter returned to this truth. We do as well. So how does this thing work out for Simon Peter? If you're there on whatever page in your scriptures or whatever screen on John 21, just look right over at Acts chapter 1. And let's see what happens after this moment in the life of Simon Peter. Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. Jesus had just ascended up into heaven, so he's off the scene now. The disciples are there gathered together, about 120, verse 13. And when, and when they entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, he's named first. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The coming of the persons was about 120 and said. So Peter's the first one who begins to give direction and begins to speak after Christ is ascended to the right hand of the Father. Skip over to chapter 2. The Holy Spirit has come upon this gathering here at the day of Pentecost. And people are hearing the gospel being proclaimed in their known languages. And everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. Chapter 2 and verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. This is a group of a few thousand people because at least 3,000 are saved this day. And so, just, just see what's happening. The guy who, warming himself by a fire outside the, the courtyard of the high priest, denying Jesus to a servant girl, is now standing before a crowd of a few thousand and explaining what's going on here. And bringing it to a point of confrontation when you get to verse 37 of chapter 2. He tells them, You've, you crucified him, by the way. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Moving on to chapter 3, verse 4. Peter and John are, are going toward the temple to pray, and there's a lame man here, verse 3 of chapter 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he says, I don't have silver or gold, verse 6, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So the guy stands up and starts walking, and then there's a large fuss, it would make sense, somebody who once couldn't walk can walk now, and so people are a little stirred about this, verse 11 of chapter 3. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And so he begins to preach. 
Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And begins to tell them that this is done by Christ and for Christ. And so, therefore, skip down to verse 19. This is what you need to do. Repent and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. This event resulted in Peter and John being arrested. And so now's prime time for Peter to fall back into his old ways of denial. Right. Like his life is on the line. Remember, they were in fear of the Jews in that locked upper room before Jesus appeared to them. So if, if there's a, mo- a moment for, for Peter to fall back, this is it. And so they they asked the, the, the religious leaders, the ones who have authority over their, over their lives, asked them in verse seven, by what power or by what name did you do this? So who speaks up? Then Peter, verse eight, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and peoples, rulers of the peoples and elders. If we're condemned, and he goes on and, and preaches the gospel, and in verse 12, there's salvation in no one else, but there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so they tell them, verse 18, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So there's the threat that's coming against them. Verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak what we've seen and heard. In other words, you can cast out all the rules, make all the edicts that you want, but our, our mouths can't stay closed because we are captured by Christ. And so Peter here preaching and, and declaring the truth of God and even confronting Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5 and on and on and on. Peter becomes the key figure in the formation of the early church. He's not given papal authority like the Roman Catholics believe. He's not, he's not given another category of sainthood that you and I can never attain to. No, man, he was, he was a failure just like we are. But he was saved by the same Lord Jesus that saves us. And then he blew it. He blew it. Like, maybe in ways that we've never blown it in our minds, but we, we still identify He blew it, and Jesus sought him out. Notice he was fishing. Done with a night of fishing, and there's Jesus on the shore waiting for the meeting. Jesus seeking his own out, and Jesus kindly, gently, and firmly restores him. And there's hope for us. There's confidence for us. Confidence and renewal and restoration that comes only by Christ. And isn't it true for us that, that our lives as Christians, our lives are a process of renewal and restoration. Renewal and restoration. We sin, and we certainly don't dismiss that sin. We don't just say, well, Jesus is going to clean me up, so I'm just going to go ahead and enjoy it for the season. When we sin, Christ pursues us in his love. And love-induced repentance is true repentance. Like Simon Peter, he's grieved that the Lord asked him a third time. Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And maybe today you need to be restored. Maybe you walk in and you're like, man, I am the biggest failure in the room. And it might be known, it might be unknown, but you might really think, if, if, if there's a scale of failure, I am setting the bar. I'm setting the curve on this exam. And you need to be restored. Well, the good news is, if you know the Lord Jesus, you can be restored. He loves you enough to pursue you. 
to pursue you, to confront you in that sin, just like Jesus did Simon Peter, and then remind you of his love for you. And you repent and confess and love him. Love him. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus, well, then you've been under the proclamation of the Lord Jesus through what we've been singing, what we've been praying, and then what we've been looking at from the scriptures. And the good news is you can be made new today. You can be made new. Simply ask him to save your soul, repent of your sin, and confess belief on the Lord Jesus. And you will be made new. Renewal and restoration. All driven by divine love. By divine love. Church, we have a Father who loves us deeply. And the Lord Jesus loves us deeply. The Holy Spirit within us reminds us of this love all the time. And when we need to be renewed and restored, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. We know that we are loved by God. And He won't leave us alone in our sin. He won't just let us perpetually walk in failure. But He will come to us and call us to renewal and to restoration. Well, how do I know he's going to renew me? Simon Peter. Simon Peter. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you that you do renew us and you do restore us. And Lord, that by your grace, Father, for your glory, you remind us of your love for us. Lord, we can't help but think as Simon Peter's hearing the questions from the Lord Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That each question just pierced deeper into his soul and reminded him of the Lord's love for him, but also reminded Simon Peter of his love for the Lord. Lord, and then this, this same beloved Apostle John writes in his letter to the churches that there's no way that we would love you unless you first loved us. Thank you, Father, for loving us, for confronting us in our failure by the Scriptures and by the Spirit and making us new all over again, reminding us of the essence of what it means to be a Christian to follow after Christ. Lord, for the person who needs to be renewed and restored, they're a Christian, but they're hung up in sin or apathetic toward the things of God. Lord, would you restore them today? Lord, for the person who doesn't know you, maybe has kind of a sense of religion and uh, somewhat of a faux Christianity, but no true, genuine relationship with you. Lord, confront them in their spiritual condition. By your grace, let them see the beauty and the majesty and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. And then give them the privilege to call out to you to be saved. And we echo the words of this dear brother in those messages to the 
early church folks, repent. Repent. Thank you for renewal. Thank you for restoration. Thank you for your love. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.